I want to also, before I pray, I want to... Worship team doesn't do it for thanks. But man, I'm thankful for the preparation that they put in. That, uh, man, I felt like I was in the throne room with the heavenly host this morning. And I uh, appreciate y'all. Let's begin with prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much for the riches of the word, for the sweet um, privilege of worship and song. Lord, we thank you also for community and the sweet time that we have to come together this morning to engage you and engage your word. We are so delighted that you show up whenever we're here and we're ready and we're available and we're attentive and our lives are laid bare and open. Lord, I beg for that in us this morning. I beg for that. I beg for that in us, not just this morning, but every day. Just a real attentiveness, a real engagement, a real dailiness to our walk. Lord, we confess and we know that that is a divine work. And that's why we're talking to you about it, the only one who's able to work that in us. And we pray that by grace you will. Lord, I also wanted this, this morning to lift up Grace uh, Community Church and just thank you so much for their partnership and ministry. And for Steve Lawson and for his family, Lord, I want to lift them up and I pray for their marriage. I pray for their home environment, Lord. I just pray that it's rich and they are enjoying and savoring Christ. I pray that Steve is being undone in his studies. I pray that it's not a scheme or a secondary book, but it's the first-hand book and the unpacking of the Word that's rocking him, that's undoing him, and that he's being rebuilt and being filled so that on Sunday mornings that he just burns. And I pray that as a result that that body will grow in depth and in number and grow ultimately in a glorifying instrument for you. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege of serving in this community and ultimately glorifying you together. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. <clears throat> We're going a few places this morning. I'd like for you first to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is kind of a pre pre-message. We're going to have the pre-message in a minute. This is the pre-pre-message. <clears throat> I um, have been getting to know a guy in our community, another pastor of a local church. It's Westminster Presbyterian. A guy named is Greg Fields. And uh, some of y'all know Greg. He, is, he and his wife Tracy, have, they're from here, so they know a lot of folks from around here. And and uh, we sat around Wednesday night till the wee hours in Brad Cardwell's barn, of all places, digging into the book of Leviticus together and just feasting on it, enjoying getting to know him and um, enjoying walking with him in kind of a shared call in this community. Something he asked us, though, toward the end of the evening, he asked me and Brad, he said, where do y'all see Crosspoint going? And you know, I immediately began to formulate an answer that had a lot to do with my equipping. I, I, and when I say equipping, I mean pre-crosspoint equipping. I mean seminary equipping. I've gone through a lot, of cro a lot of church planting classes and things like that where they, they teach you how to plant a church and that you've got to have a vision and you've got to develop these strategies and goals and you have to have these purposes and be purpose-driven and, and all these sort of things that that began kind of 
muddying my answer, and I don't even remember really what I told him. It really was pretty lame. Brad shared some thoughts that were much better than what I shared. But in the period of time since Wednesday night, I've had the chance to really think about that question. And I I haven't revisited the question with Greg yet, but I will. But I thought, what I want to do is share it with the body this morning. Because I know, man, there's times where we may be sitting around saying, where are we going? You know, what are we doing? And there may be people who are taking a look at Crosspoint and saying, where are you going? That's a good question. I'm glad you brought that up. So, had I, chan- had I had the chance to sit back down in Brad's barn on Wednesday night and ask and answer the question again, it would be this answer. Greg asked the question, where do you guys see yourself going? Transported back in time, I would say. Um, let's see, what's after John chapter 11? <laughs> John 12. That's where we're going. You know, I thought about that answer, and I thought, man, that's kind of lame. You know, all my church planter instructors and professors, they would just have a heyday with that. I I wouldn't pass their classes with answers like that. You've got to have a vision. You've got to have a plan and a strategy. And if you don't have those things, then you're not purpose-driven, and you're not doing all those things that we're supposed to do as a church. Rick Warren has got it figured out, and that's the way you're supposed to do it. Now, before I continue with this thought... Let me say this. I will not and am not discounting what God has done in Rick Warren's church. Or through his book, Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life. But that's not what he's called me to. He's not called me to a pastor a purpose-driven church. He's called me to pastor a scripture-driven church. Now, let me also qualify this. If I were to sit down with Rick Warren and say that, if he would give me a moment... He would probably roll his eyes and say, well, our purposes, purpi, <laughs> come from the Scripture, so that's, you know, irrelevant. That's, that's nebulous, what you're saying there. And I would beg to differ. Of course, I don't know how those purposes were developed. If it was developed over the course of years of unpacking the Scripture, then I could see that and I could understand that. The problem is, people are starting churches and reading his book and trying to interpose, interpolate, I don't know what what word I'm looking for, his design on their church. And I don't want to do that. He just hasn't called us to do that. We may be a purpose-driven church someday. Maybe not. But I know what we are now. We're a scripture-driven church. Where are we going? We're going to John chapter 12. Now what this does in us is it creates in us kind of a reactionary stance. We react to things. And you know, again, I would get hammered in the church planning classes. But you've got to have a plan. You've got to have a vision. You've got to be able to tell people where you're going, what the plan is, and how this whole thing works, to engage your community and things like that. And I realized to be reactionary defies all good business sense. And then I remember, oh yeah, we're not a business. Oh yeah, we're not an organization. Oh yeah, we don't devise plans and schemes and strategies. We respond to this book and we do it corporately. We're an organism, which is different from an organization. And an organism lives for what? Its next meal. An organism must eat. And it's that food that nourishes the organism to go about its daily task of living. That's what we are, is a 
Scripture-driven church. I realize that that's not enough for some. And I don't want to knock that. I really don't. If the Lord has really given you a desire to be part of a big programmed church, God's using those things. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Please don't hear me discounting that. I'm just saying, let me communicate to our body what we're doing and why. It's the next chap- chapter, next passage of Scripture that's defining what we do. I realize that it's not enough. Many want a busy bulletin and a busy calendar so that they can identify what they want to be part of. What I have found myself part of in a setting like that was almost kind of a, um, uh, the word I'm looking for is kind of a continuing education sort of mindset. Christy's a physical therapist, so she has to do continuing ed every year or so. And she kind of takes a look at a survey of things. You know, I could use some, some education on knees. I think I'll go to a knee course. And I found myself in that setting with big curriculums, big plans, big designs. I'm saying, I, I think I'm kind of shy on that. I think I'll go complement my walk with that class. And I realize there's nothing wrong with that. But what I would rather do Well, let me back up. What I observed in those settings was that the Sunday morning message and the Sunday morning Bible studies and the Wednesday night Bible studies were kind of parallel to those events rather than behind and driving those events. It was kind of like, oh yeah, what else do you do? You preach the word, that's great, but what else do you do? Well, we obey it. That's what I think we ought to do. That's what I think we ought to be. Isn't that hard enough? If we really let this book and these words undo us, if we really let them impact our lives, that's work enough. That's hard work, and that's what we want to be about corporately. I had you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, because there's a passage I want to read to you. Chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. You're about to hear about a 40-year lesson. With one point. A 40-year lesson with one point. That he might humble you. Testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry. And he fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know. That he might make you understand. Here's the 40-year lesson. One point. That man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Where are we going as a church? John 12 via John 11 verses 50 through 53. We're going to bathe in those verses for I don't know how long until the Lord tells us to go on. I never hear his voice audibly. I just know when he's given me an okay to move ahead. And he hasn't given me that. He hasn't given me that yet. And actually what I'm doing this morning is I'm going to introduce you to kind of a preliminary message that I, he's, he's given me that I need to give you before we can proceed into John chapter 11, verses 50 through 53. But let's go ahead and since we're letting the Scripture, the next passage of Scripture be our guide, let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. We're still going to visit it. I'm not going to unpack it, but we're still going to read it together. John chapter 11, beginning in verse... 44. I want to emphasize again before I go ahead. I am not, don't go telling people that Ben McGraw was ragging on the purpose-driven church. You know, 
a big old church. It's an easy target. Little old Ben McGraw, little old Cross Point Fellowship throwing rocks at that big old church. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying what we're doing and why. I would want to know if I were you. I need to remind myself, what are we doing? Sometimes I want to see big bulletins with big plans and big designs, and then I go, oh, yeah. We're just, it's hard enough just doing the next verse. It's hard enough just obeying the next verse. Let's do that. Let's be obedient in that. And if he gives us a program, let it be progeny and offspring of that book. Not because I read somebody else's book. Or because you read somebody else's book. Let's let that book be the mommy and the daddy. Okay. Now, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 44. <clears throat> the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. If you hadn't been here the last three months or so, Jesus, has, he really did. He raised him from the dead. He was dead four days and uh, so dead. He was stink, stinketh. He was so dead. He was sealed in a tomb, a great picture of our picture or our, of our condition apart from Christ, hopeless and helpless, dead in our trespasses and sins, and unable to do anything about it any more than Lazarus could do anything about his condition. But Christ, the effectual call of a living, powerful Lord, called a man even forward from death. And it's a great picture of our salvation, of him calling us from death to life. Therefore, because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, in verse 45, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. It's tattletales. Verse 47. Therefore, because Jesus... Therefore, pay attention to therefore. Therefore, because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and because some Jews believed, and because some Jews came and tattled, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place kind of point to their temple, and our nation. These guys are not really scared about that. All right, realize, you're talking about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, guys that usually don't hang out together, coming together and addressing the issue of Christ. They're not worried about their temple and their people. They're worried about their own power. They're worried about their own influence, their own station, and what they perceive to be their call. And here they are, Blaming it, or, or at least pointing to a fear for the place in the nation. But one of them, in verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, verse 51. Now, John the writer, the book of John, understand the sweep here, where this story is going. John the writer is commenting on what Caiaphas just said. Okay? Caiaphas didn't have like this high priestly role of offering prophecy that day. He's just speaking. He's just talking about Jesus. Hey, it's expedient that we kill him. And now John the writer of the book of John is commenting on what Caiaphas said. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, and I'm going to interject, unbeknownst to him, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one 
the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's you and me. It's scattered abroad not only over space, but over time. When he talks about the children of God being scattered abroad, he's talking about you and me if you're in fellowship with Christ by faith. Man, that's awesome to think about this guy, Caiaphas, unbeknownst to him, is prophesying about Ben McGraw. Okay, now it's personal. Now we can climb in there. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Okay. I planned on a single message from this passage. For weeks, actually for months. I've been looking ahead to John 11 and kind of trying to discern where the Lord was leading us and he stinketh and things like that. And, and, and then the rest of the chapter. And I said, oh man, that will make a great message on substitutionary atonement. Now I realize that some of you, even just hearing those two words, even if you only heard them one or the other, you'd go, pew! But hearing them together, you're really going, well, whatever. I'm glad that maybe the Lord has convicted him to go somewhere else. Maybe he's not actually going to preach on that. Well, in fact, I'm not going to preach just one message on that. I'm going to preach as long as the Lord tells me to preach on that, and then we'll move on. And I, here's, here's what happened. I thought, yeah, I'll preach one message on substitutionary atonement. I had a single class on that in seminary, three or four years worth of seminary. A single class on that. I think it was a systematic theology class, and I thought that's kind of nifty. I thought that's kind of nifty. It'd be cool to kind of give that to our people, you know? Kind of round out the faith, you know? <laughs> and then, man, I'm telling you, the Lord convicted me. He convicted me as he's unpacking and exposing the truths behind what Caiaphas prophesied. So we're going to stay there as long as he wants us to. And then we'll move on. As I've been preparing, I have to tell you this morning, as I've been preparing to preach that supposedly one single message on substitutionary atonement, I've been both confused and delighted. Both at the same time. I've been confused because I, Ben McGraw, your pastor of three years, and making a confession to you, I don't have a good handle on Christ in the Old Testament. I don't. I am, to use shorthand, I'm Christ in the OT ignorant. I'm Christ, not OT ignorant. I'm familiar with the Old Testament. I grew up eating it. But I'm ignorant of Christ in the OT. And that's where we're going. More on that in a moment. I'll come back to that. I'm confused. But I'm also delighted. I'm delighted because I've entered into a new wing of the mansion. Now, it's not a new wing. In fact, it's an ancient wing of the mansion. But it's new to me. And I'm walking around that mansion and I'm appreciating the tapestries of the sacrificial system. And I'm discovering an ancient story that points to a crucified and risen, but a crucified and sacrificed, a perfectly sacrificed Lord. And I'm marveling. I'm both confused, but yet at the same time, I'm delighted. Let me speak more to my confusion. First of all, Regarding my confusion, my confusion is why I'm not prepared to preach John 11, verses 50 through 53 today. Next week. After lots more hard work. Not for lack of effort, trust me. I don't know that I've spent as much time studying in these last two weeks that I've spent in the last three years over a two-week period. Bathing in something that I've never really eaten. So, I'm not going to be preaching from John 11, verses 50 through 53 today. I'm not ready, and it's not for lack of work. 
Although I've entered that wing of the mansion, I'm not ready to give you a tour of it yet. There's a difference between discovering it myself and being able and ready to lead you in. In order to really eat John 11, 50 through 53, which we will begin to dine on next week, we need to eat. I need to eat before I can preach it. The dusty old book of Leviticus. Now we're talking. Now we guess grow a church on the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Hopefully you understand where I'm going with this. It's dusty and it's unfamiliar to me, but Christ is all over and throughout the book. And I'm seeing that. And I hope by grace and mercy that we'll better understand that in the next few weeks. So I'm dining on Leviticus right now. I'm feasting on Leviticus. I want you to remember that I'm Christ in the OT, ignorant. So I've got a lot of work to do before next Sunday. I want to tell you that most treatment of the Old Testament by my teachers and preachers over the years, I'm not talking about yours, I don't know who's you, who yours were, but my teachers and preachers over the, over the years, the most treatment of the Old Testament was to address the narratives and to teach things like character and faithfulness. Are those profitable? Absolutely. Absolutely. That has been my bread over the years. Stories of David and Goliath. Stories of Daniel and the lion's den. Noah and the ark. I, but I have not been taught to see Christ in those stories. I've seen them in their immediate impact. But I've not been taught to see Christ throughout the scriptures. Now... My treatment as your pastor and teacher, Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights of the Old Testament, has typically been to illustrate the book of John. And it does so beautifully. And it exposes Christ in the Old Testament in some ways. It's, it's appropriate for us to do that. There's no better illustrator of Scripture than Scripture. And especially in John, a lot of the things we're seeing in John are pictures, or they've been typed in the Old Testament. That's been most of my treatment. But I have inadequately taught Christ from the Old Testament. Seeing as how he runs throughout the Old Testament. Now, that takes me back to my delight. I told you I would address my confusion first, and now my delight. I'm beginning to see Christ in the neglected and dusty book of Leviticus. I am understanding, being a key word, the cross like never before. I'm seeing that the Jews had hundreds of years worth of tabernacle business. And I don't just mean business, I mean busyness. When you read the book of Leviticus, you're introduced to all sorts of offerings. You have a guilt offering, you have a sin offering, you have a burnt offering, you have a grain offering, you have a peace offering. And you've got the Day of Atonement where a goat is brought in and slaughtered, the, the goat for the Lord. And then there's a scapegoat that's brought out to the wilderness only after Aaron places his hands on it. You're seeing business, lots of busyness going on at the tabernacle. And I'm realizing that if I lived in that time, I would have to live right outside the tabernacle because I'd be offering stuff every day, all day long. And think about a whole people doing that. And think about these priests slaughtering animals every day in and out and at the entrance to that tabernacle. A place of busyness that I've never consumed, a place that exposes the finished work of Christ. And now, though, I'm delighted because I'm getting acquainted with that. And I'm delighted also 
because I feel like I'm in fellowship with two ancient travelers on the road to Emmaus. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Remember, this is the pre-message. You already got the pre-pre-message. This is the pre-message, but it's a message nonetheless. Next week, we're going to climb into John chapter 11, verses 50 through 53. But for today, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Let me give you a little bit of background, a little context of where we are in the book of Luke. Christ has been crucified and Christ is risen. He's only hours risen because Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, just found the tomb empty and they found the angels testifying of Christ's resurrection. They come race back in verse 9 to the eleven and to all the rest. And here's a couple of all the rest in verse 13. And behold, two of all the rest were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. You can imagine they just stopped short. What did you say? And they're standing there looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, remember, he just stopped short. Like, are you kidding me? He says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of these things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word and in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, the third day since these things have happened, but also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman had also said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart. I can just almost imagine. O short-sighted men. O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? I'm going to interject some possible thoughts here. Did you not see me in the book of Genesis where the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go. And dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Did you not see me there, Cleopas? 
Did you not see me in Genesis chapter 22? Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it will be provided didn't you see me Cleopas and other unnamed dude Didn't you see me in those passages that you should have been eating over the years? Didn't you see me in Leviticus? In Leviticus, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities." Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regards to all their sins. And he shall lay on them, he shall lay on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land. Didn't you see me there? Cleopas, were you asleep on those messages, on those teachings, or did you sleep in, or were you traveling, were you away? Did you miss seeing me unpacked and exposed and revealed in the Old Testament? Maybe this one, Isaiah chapter 53, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Why did you miss it, Cleopas? Why did you miss it? You saw me crucified. You saw my scourging. Why did you miss this? All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with a wicked man. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. How could you miss that, Cleopas? He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. How in the world could you miss that? Cleopas. I was in the lion's den. Cleopas. I was on the field of battle with nothing but a sling and a river rock. Cleopas, you missed it. I was on an ark preserving a remnant for my own glory. Cleopas, didn't you see me there? And back in verse 27, this is a place, if I could transport myself in time, I'd want to be on this road, if only for a few minutes. Because what transpires there back in Luke 24, then beginning with Moses. He's not talking about talking about Moses. Moses is shorthand for the first five books of the Bible. He's talking about Torah. He's talking about the Pentateuch. More big words that we really don't want to bother with, but words that will, will change us and rock us. We begin to eat things like that. We begin to eat the first five books of the law. He's saying the beginning with the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What a journey that must have been. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to others, or giving it to them. Deja vu. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Here's where I want to focus this morning, just the last couple minutes. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us from Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all through the prophets? Were not our hearts burning within us when he exposed those books that we had not bothered to eat before now? Were not our hearts burning within us? When I read that, as I was preparing for this morning, this pre-message before we go to John chapter 11, when I read that, I read that and I thought, I want a burning, full counsel heart. 
I want a heart that burns because I've seen Christ in the full counsel, in the full story from the beginning, from Genesis. And I realize that God has been on his throne. And it's not just about the Roman road. It's not just about the short little faith outline. If that's all there is, man, we're bumming. That might introduce us to Christ, but the daily journey of feasting is all through this book. If we want our hearts to truly burn, if you want a heart that burns with something, something that matters, then we've got to eat the full counsel. We've got to take the time to work through books like Leviticus. Dusty Leviticus. I want a burning, full counsel heart. And you know what? I realize that in preaching through things like Leviticus, on things like substitutionary atonement, that some people can't hang. I realize that. Some people are going to be, man, I'm gone. I need somebody to help me with my marriage. And what they don't realize is that is salve for the wounds that you may not know you have that are at the heart of your marital problems. That's the solution. You think, man, that's irrelevant. Talk about something that's relevant. That is everything. You will find that it impacts the relevant. If you'll but surrender to it, and if you'll but eat it, if you'll but work at it, if you'll but listen to it, not as entertainers or consumers, but as worshipers, you'll find marriages changing. You'll find besetting sins changing. When you'll but surrender to eat this. I want a burning full counsel heart, and I want your hearts to burn too. Even if it's 20 of us. I'd rather have 20 people with burning hearts than packed sanctuaries of people that sit and soak week in, week out. Burning hearts is what I want because that's the fuel for what we talked about last week. For those of you who are here or those of you who listen to the message, three-mile-an-hour discipleship. You think you can participate in three-mile-an-hour discipleship for the long haul without the nourishment and the fuel of substitutionary atonement? You may not even know what that is. Trust me, you can't. You don't have the goods. You're just hanging out with a friend and calling it discipleship. You have nothing to give them. It is the very fuel, and it's a slow-burning fuel. It's the very fuel for three-mile-an-hour discipleship. That's why we're going to take the time to eat Leviticus together. Because that's what changes lives. That's what provides fuel for three-mile-an-hour discipleship. Without this, you don't have the goods for discipleship. Without this, it won't last. A full council burning heart is fuel for worship. A full council burning heart is fuel for an aromatic life. A full council burning heart is fuel for the salty and the bright, Christ-satisfied life that transforms families, neighborhoods, and communities. Next week... We're going to consider this expedient, using Caiaphas' word, sacrifice. And however long he leaves us there, we're going to consider the nature of it. We're going to consider the power of it. Let me finish my thought before we pack up. We're going to consider the nature of it. We're going to consider the power of it. I'm going to study hard. If you call me or email me, you may not hear back from me. I'm going to be digging in 
with a purpose ready to feast next Sunday. I'll study and I beg you to pray. I beg you to do some study of your own so that we can dine together and so that we can believe deeper. Let me pray. Lord, I, um, I'm thankful for things that confound us. I'm thankful for things that aren't tidy and aren't easy. Lord, although my body and my mind and my um, human faculties fatigue, I recognize that it's in the work that I come to know you deeper. Lord, I beg that you will create in us hard-working people that are feasting and dining on the Word, that are doing it, that are worshiping, that aren't plagued with the question of whether it works or not, but that rather are asking the question, does it worship? That are feasting on things that matter to you. Hundreds of years worth of a sacrificial system. I confess to you before our people that I haven't bothered with. And I'm ashamed but I'm willing to do something about that, Lord. I pray that you will find a people here that are ready to work through some deep, difficult, confusing things so that we'll know our Christ better. Lord, we pray as a result that you'll find a people that are more aromatic, that are saltier, that are brighter, that are more serious about discipleship and what it means to follow you. And as a result, that you'll be glorified through this little people. We love you with everything in us. And whatever is not available for you, we pray by grace that you'll liberate. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.